Rick's, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Sarah Seeger, who is a professor of planetary sciences at MIT. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm always excited to talk to people that are vastly uh, more intelligent than I am. And so this is a real delight to have you on the show. And what really struck, what, why, we, why we reached out is you wrote a paper on the possibility of a hypothesis that there could be life on Venus. And I, I kind of want to get into that because that's right in our backyard. And I guess what makes you think that? Um, is probably my first question. Well, maybe to start out, we could just give everyone, you know, a bit of background about Venus. It's so bright in the night sky. If you ever have a chance, it's not always there, but when it is, it's pretty much the brightest object in our night sky. Now, Venus, you know, it's a crazy place for life because it's so hot. If you remember ever learning about it in school or reading about it, this planet, Venus is incredible. It has a massive carbon dioxide greenhouse atmosphere and the surface is so hot, no life of any kind could survive. But what is amazing about Venus, and by the way, this goes back like half a century. It's just like, you know how on Earth, do you ever, I don't know if you ever hike, do you ever like hike up? Like go? All the time. Oh, you do? All the time. I'm an avid hiker. I'm out here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the Northwest? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm out here in Portland. Oh, my gosh. You know, it gets colder as you go up. Well, yes. it gets it can get very cold very quickly. Well, on Venus, the same thing is true. So far above the surface, it gets cooler and cooler until there's a layer in the atmosphere, high in the clouds, 50 kilometers above the surface, where the temperature is actually just right for life. That's astounding. I actually, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. And you know what's even more astounding? So this idea has been around for over half a century that there's some kind of life that there could be maybe microbes like tiny, you know, bacteria type life floating around in the clouds. Because here on our planet Earth, we have life in our clouds as well. Actually, I did not I did not know that <laughs> know. at all. What what kind of life do we have in our clouds? We have like bacteria that are they're temporarily swept up from the surface and they hang out in the clouds maybe for like up to a week. They can be like moved across continents and drop back down. But unlike on Earth, well, it's pretty cloudy, I think. Well, I don't know if it's cloudy where you are, but I always think of the Northwest. Maybe that's just the coast. It's like being really rainy. No, you're right. You're 100%. It's a terrible <laughs> okay. place. Don't come here. No. <laughs> okay. But there are, um, you know, here on Earth, so we could say that or you could say, oh, go to the desert if you want clear skies. Well, on Venus, it's always cloudy. The clouds are always there and they're very extensive. Like they are 20 kilometers deep. And they're always there. So there's this concept that there could be life just floating around in the clouds, you know, borrowing from Earth and just thinking about the temperature and everything. So that's kind of where it starts. That's fun. Wasn't there a mission or some sort of probe sent to Venus like in the 70s? And I don't know how long it transmitted. This is like really reaching back in the deep yeah, yeah, recesses that's great. of I'm my mind. I'm glad you, you know about this because there was a heyday for Venus in the 1970s. The Russians sent many probes to Venus. They dropped like probe after probe. NASA sent a probe. It actually made four. It split into four, kind of. It dropped four separate things. Mm -hmm. And the Russians even sent a balloon, two balloons to Venus. Yes, yes. I didn't yeah. know about the balloons, but I know that, that Russia has always been very into Venus. And how would we, in the future, go about collecting uh, g getting a, a some sort of craft into the into the into the clouds? Is that something that's being talked about? It really is, actually, yeah. So 
let's go back a bit though. So one of the things back in this, um, the Russians and some of the data from NASA, like some of this data showed unusual gases, like things that didn't make sense. And I don't know if this happens in what you folks do, but sometimes things are just so confusing, they get shelved. Yes. Like there's no great explanation. It's sort of just ignored. Well, it turns out that some of these gases, they just don't belong. And, you know, we love the concept that just like on Earth, like people and cows and microbes and plants are putting off gases, that there may be this life, maybe there is life in the atmosphere. It's putting off these gases that we can't explain any other way. So it's kind of like this, you know, I, I hesitate to say crazy theory or crazy idea. It's not considered mainstream in any way. But that's kind of more of the evidence. You know, there's some unusual things happening, some gases, there's some unusual, there's unusual patterns on Venus if you look at it in the ultraviolet. And, you know, people do like the idea that it leaves room for the possibility of life. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I'm, I'm team alien. Um, okay. If you, it's not this, like I'm, most scientists. It's great talking to you because the scientists would be like, mm, no, no. Need proof, oh, yeah. need evidence. They're not as supportive. Oh. I'm going to be honest with you. you're talking to like I am so team alien that I there hat mathematically there has to be life out there and the pro- my problem is like I'm I want to believe so I'm there's there is just an automatic yeah, that's that's probably right there's definitely there's definitely life out there so I'm I'm 100% on board with this idea I I would love to uh hopefully we can get some sort of studies and people to look into this more seriously I think that we're missing a lot of uh so, picture pieces of the puzzle because there is such a vehement like ah no it can't be, there can't be life out there just I mean I don't understand why we don't have an open mind about these things and and really look into them more seriously it's it's kind of the tragedy of academia in my opinion yeah I love what you've said I do yeah well let's take this a little further so this might shed light on it a bit more so despite those temperatures being good in the atmosphere of Venus in the clouds. These clouds are are nasty, okay? They're not made of water like our clouds. You know, the water droplets, very friendly. They're made of sulfuric acid, concentrated sulfuric acid, which like you wouldn't want to drop that on your skin. It would literally burn your skin. If you, for whatever reason, you wouldn't do this, but if you were to put an ant like in concentrated sulfuric acid, which I can tell you why I know about this, but uh, <laughs> it would actually, you know what happens? It has an immediate seizure and then liquefies. Oh, wow. It's not not pretty. Did you so did self- you run this experiment? Well, what happened was during COVID, um, you know how there were like no summer jobs for kids, no camps, like nothing to do. Mm-hmm. My one son, I had my one son. He was, I think he was either sixteen or seventeen. Work for one of my colleagues who works on Venus. Mm-hmm. And after he got the job done, which was like a database research of what materials can withstand sulfuric acid because when you're thinking of building your spacecraft and it's going to go in the atmosphere it has to not get damaged well he also pushed to do real experiments and so we ordered some sulfuric acid and we did these outdoors of course and it was a great way to you know when you when there wasn't anything else to do but then he just took stuff from the environment to like (laughs) see what happened to it yeah (laughs) so but he discovered something really awesome and a lot of this is already known but it's the joy of discovery that is just so thrilling he took this leaf. We have this plant. It's called, uh, I think it's a rhododendron, and it's mm-hmm. got a really waxy leaf. Yeah. And that actually, believe it or not, it took a while. That one didn't react to sulfuric acid. The wax, like, protected it. Fast. Yeah. I actually, that would not have I expected know. that at all. 
And we tried other stuff like graphene, um, like pencil lead, you know, graphite. And we ordered a bunch of stuff as well, like rock material and other things such as um, like pure sulfur. It's like this yellow material. But what is amazing about that wax is imagine if there was some kind of life and it managed to like make a shell around it, like part of its, you know, survival strategy. It's inside the droplet um, or maybe it's floating around and it can make a material because there are things that are resistant to it. Oh, hundred percent. Well, and so, it, yeah. it would be interesting because we have life on Earth. Like the, I think it's a tardigrade that can survive the vacuum of space and and all sorts right, of things. Right. And we, so it's not that there are things on this planet right now, little microbes, bacteria that can survive extreme conditions. There's things at the bottom of, oh boy. Uh, the geysers and stuff that we're finding. So right. it would be, I, I really, do you, second question, do you, were you able to find any material that is able to deal with sulfuric acid? Well, there's materials, but no life. Yeah. So what I love about this conversation, it's like a, you're like a scientist, like the way you're thinking through this and gathering the info and, you know, there's always a back and forth. So that's a really great question because there's no life on earth that could survive in sulfuric acid. That's kind of the bottom line. So any life there has to be different from anything we can conceive of right now. The gas yeah. have a different, you know, biochemistry. It has to have different building blocks. Yeah, it would be. It wouldn't be a carbon-based life form per se. Correct? Am I? Am I thinking? I mean, like along it might be right carbon. Um, it might be carbon-based, but it would just have to have materials that are like arranged differently than our, like DNA, for example. Okay. There's no answer. I, I couldn't even answer your question. Like I couldn't say what it is. Well, it'd be alien. Or what it has to be. Yeah, it would yeah. be alien. It would be it alien. It'd be yeah. alien to everything. It would be super man. But yeah. but uh, as far as like materials, right? Do we if we were gonna create a ship or some sort of balloon or something to gather to I don't know, the only word that pops in my head is like rake these right. clouds. Like what do we have anything that we've come up with to in order to do this? We do, because remember, we've been there before, Yes, and the Russians had the balloon that lasted two days. Oh, I didn't know it lasted two yeah, days. I, it lasted I knew a long that, time. Okay. I thought and w- you know one why? of them... Go ahead. What happened was it could only last as long as its batteries could. You know, it's the same kind of problem we have every day. Yeah. Uh, so they just sent it with batteries, and when the batteries were out, that was kind of the end. But they coated the balloon with Teflon, you know, like in your frying pan? Yeah. Non-stick, yeah. yeah. So there are there's lots of materials. That was what... The job assigned to my son I was talking to you about was just to, you know, go to the various um, existing databases that we that are out there and, you know, collect a list of materials that are resistant. Okay. All right. So we, we do have, we've got the technology. We've got, yeah. made a plenty of advancements in batteries. So now we just got to get the funding. And we got to go to Venus. We have to figure this out. I don't know. Um, do, yeah. Yeah. Do we know? Is there anything slated? Well, there's a lot going on with Venus, but let's go back to one more piece of the story, okay? This you're going to love, okay? I'm excited. So I do work, uh, mostly I work on exoplanets, planets that orbit stars other than the sun. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a whole like holy grail of trying to find signs of life by way of gases that don't belong. Mm -hmm. And my team was working on this one gas. It's going to sound really obscure, but it's called phosphine. Okay. So it's just, you probably never heard of it. It's not something that's really like in your everyday kind of toolkit. <laughs> yeah, never heard um, of that. But actually, it's kind of, um, it's, yeah. So we were working on phosphine. And then 
was just absolutely amazing because, yeah, you haven't heard of it. Most people haven't heard of it. There was another scientist. Her name's Professor Jane Greaves. Mm -hmm. She was also working on phosphine as a possible gas produced by life. But she purposely set out to search for signs of life on Venus by searching for phosphine gas Mm -hmm. using telescopes here on Earth. Okay. So this is pretty out there, actually, just the idea that you, you know, would even spend time or resources doing this. But someone connected our two teams because we were both working on phosphine. And Professor Jane Greaves is actually a radio astronomer. She uses radio telescopes to study just objects far away. And she's from the UK. So we teamed up. And after um, a number of years, Jane was leading this project. And we reported a discovery of this gas, phosphine on Venus. Okay. And now this actually is really important because on Earth phosphine is only associated with life with like bacteria and oxygen free environments like uh, wetlands. It's associated with animal guts, like uh, feces, like penguin poop over penguin colonies. There's lots of phosphine, it turns out. So we found this really unusual gas and the team thought about every possible way you could make phosphine, like volcanoes, lightnings, meteors that hit the atmosphere and like evaporate and like every way you could imagine and wrote like a hundred page, you know, paper like uh, on all this and said, wow, if there's truly phosphine on Venus, it's either unknown chemistry that we don't know, or it leaves the room for the possibility of life. Whoa. Yeah. And that was not the reaction of most (laughs) other scientists. People got like, we made a big announcement in September, 2020. And this was like an incredible time because Venus had been largely ignored at some level, like since the missions we talked about in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah. yeah. This is fucking crazy. I did not know. Yeah. Yeah, You'll have to send me this um, paper after it just email if you can. I don't know if you can, but um, I would love to, I would love to read that. Yeah. What's even more jaw dropping is that after that, Um, this result was like seriously attacked in many ways. And in science, there's a healthy back and forth, right? Like we'll say we found phosphine and then you, you could get the data because the data is all public. And if you had, you know, the right skill, which some people do, people analyze the data on their own and some other teams didn't find the signal in the data. It's like literally looking for a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And some teams did find the signal. So there's right now this kind of big controversy where the team I'm involved with, led by Professor Jane Greaves, stands by our detection that there is phosphine. You know, some Mm -hmm. other teams look at the same data and say there's no phosphine. And some other teams look and say there is a signal. So there's like a giant kind of um, argument kind of playing out here about phosphine. There's three. So is the signal of of phosphine... um, could you find it? Could you, I mean, uh, replicate it? Could you, could you see it right now if we were to go and look, or is this something that pops up and then disappears? Cause I mean, if you, right. there's, there are people that have uh, minor astronomers and NASA, I believe has documented that there's been green light. Buzz Aldrin saw green light as he descended on the, to the moon landing. So there are weird anomalies that happen that we have documented in right, space. Right. So I don't see why this, there's a lot of uh, back and forth and, and who knows if it's bacteria, maybe it's blooming or something like that. In, in that case, I'm, I'm always going to lean to you. Right. Right. By the way. <laughs> well, part of this is that it is like the same data set. So it's like, as if you went out and took a picture of something, okay. but you had to, you know, change the contrast. I don't know if you ever do that, but like you play around with the brightness change or things like that. It's kind of 
similar to that idea. Okay. And so, you know, they use the same data and don't see it. So it's a, kind of different from looking now or looking next year or last year. But what I wanted to say about this is that it's like literally shone a light on Venus. Like it brought Venus back from like being some boring dead planet to being like, wow, we should care about Venus again. Yeah, I mean, people have always been working on Venus, but this just drew like a lot of attention to this planet. Yeah, yeah. And, and Venus is a very interesting, it's a very interesting, but doesn't it have, or, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't it have like lakes of like, no, no it's not liquid nitrogen. It's, that's, I think You're thinking about Titan. Titan is one of Saturn's moons. Yeah. Thank you. But it's in the, you know why it occupies the same part of your brain? Because it's exotic and just wild. And yes. so Titan is very far. It's very cold. And it literally, yes, it has liquid methane and ethane, like kind of like gasoline, like lakes. It's bizarre. It is super bizarre. The, I mean, Europa is also something that I, I mean, I went through a, a, a deep obsession with Europa because I think that if we were able to drill down that there would be an ocean underneath ice. And uh, I'm like, there's, I mean, there's probably life there too. I mean, who, who knows? Like there, there knows, potentially right. could be life in our, and then, you know, another, another problem I have is like, I'll get obsessed with like Kepler 22 B or Kepler 16 B. Right. And then I find out how far away they are. Like, We're never yeah, going right. to be able to go there. And I just, uh, it's a, uh, it's a depressing, it's a, dep- I get so hopeful, but we're, right, we right. don't have the technology as of yet to get these massive distances away. Like my brain can't even comprehend how far away these things really right. are. But I just know that on, is it Kepler 16b where it's, it's circling a dwarf star. And so, uh, part of the planet is, is in sun and the other half is always in darkness. Am I right there? Yeah. It's not Kepler 16 per se, but there's a lot, you can't remember all. There's literally like thousands and thousands of planets. So, but yes, there are planets like you describe and many more crazy types out there. Yeah, absolutely. What's up, John? Yeah. Oh, uh, so I did look up. So the Kepler system is a it's a it's a binary system. It's a uh, I'm not sure what the prime the larger star is, but the smaller star is a red dwarf. So it, you might be thinking of that system, but like Doctor Seeger said, there's you know a lot of planets and stuff. So thank you. Yeah, um, I I get I get there's there's there are so many. I mean, we've kind of stopped naming planets now. It's like K two or you know, and yeah. um. I wish um, we so, could let people name them. Wouldn't that be so cool if they said, oh, Rick, we want you to name this particular planet. That would be so awesome. It would be Rickatron. <laughs> Rickatron or Rictimus Prime. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Something like that. It would be ridiculous. But um yeah, yeah I, I, I wish I wish that I wish that too. I mean, if I found if I was a a my a minor astronomer or a, you know, just I did it as a hobby and I was able to discover something, I'm sure I could, they'd let me name it, right? Well, oddly enough, no for planets, <gasps> but asteroids, you can get an asteroid named after you. I actually have an asteroid named after me. Ooh, you do. How do yeah. I, how do I go about getting an asteroid named after me? I'm not exactly sure how it happens, but it's a lot of asteroids are named after a lot of people. And you know, you just want to make sure that it's the one that gets named after you isn't that killer asteroid <laughs> that ends up hitting the earth. <laughs> not be uh, bad you, if the Rickatron asteroid was, ends up being the one that we have to try to nudge away or like save the planet to get rid of it. They, we wouldn't be able to stop it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, that is cool though. I, 
that, I I want now I, I'm going to look into that after this show. Definitely, we'll see if see if one is already named after me, or if, I'm probably have to pay some money. So who knows if I'll do it? But um, yeah, back to back to Venus. Um, have you always been interested in Venus? Is this or is this something that has just kind of developed recently? It's just kind of developed because I've been working. You know, like you, like it's like you just you just summarized it. I work on exoplanets, but they're so far away. And we're getting to the point where we're we're going to get great data with the new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope that launched recently. But Venus is just so close to home. And until this whole phosphine thing, I really wasn't paying attention to Venus. Yeah, and th- that's in that that the J- is James Webb Telescope, correct? Correct. Yeah, that yeah. just launched, and that's heading to the the Tapas system. Well, this James Webb Space Telescope, by the way, it launched on Christmas morning, so. I'm not sure you were probably sleeping because it was in Pacific time, like 4.20 a.m. Oh, I was definitely asleep. asleep. Uh, (laughs) I actually was on the West Coast and we woke up to watch the launch and it was, uh, it launched from South America, but it was the most beautiful. This telescope has been 30 years in the making and it's used to, it's like the next Hubble, basically. Oh, Oh, really? Yeah. It's a big, big deal. It's, it's. It's an incredible like testament to the human ability to build amazing capabilities for space. And Did this you- telescope, by the way, it's going out to, it's going really far from Earth because Hubble, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it, Hubble orbits Earth. Okay, yeah. And di- yeah, it orbits every 90 minutes. So hmm. it goes through night and day, night, day, night, day. Mm-hmm. And that's not really good for astronomy because I'm I'm guessing you don't have to do this. You look like a super strong guy, but people like me, like, you know, when you open the jar, you don't have this. But if you try to open a jar and you can't open it, you run it under hot water. Okay. No, you don't know about this. Okay, no, this is what I didn't. Do. So, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so if I have a jar of like a glass jar with a metal top. So I have like these artichoke hearts. I get them in this glass jar. It's like a mm-hmm. Costco thing. Okay, or if you have, like jar. peanut butter, I get this really nice peanut butter. It's in a glass jar. If you can't open it, you run it under hot water. I'm sure some of the listeners will know what this is. And the metal cap expands the tiniest amount. So after you ran under hot water, the metal expanded, but the glass didn't. So then you can open the jar. I actually did not know this. I'm getting. You guys I'm are making also, me laugh because like no, you're just so strong. You never had to think about this. I I knew this. I have a I have a small wife though, so I'll take credit for that part. Okay. All right. So you have to know about that because Hubble, think about this for a moment. It goes through like night and day every 90 minutes because it's orbiting Earth quite you know quickly. Yes. But imagine that, like some metal parts are expanding a tiny amount every time it goes in the sunlight. Oh. And then when it cools down again, some of those parts are shrinking. Okay. But the whole telescope isn't doing that. Just like the glass jar, it's made of different things. So imagine it going out of focus a tiny bit or just something changing that's not really good for mm-hmm. very, very careful measurements. Yeah, that's going yeah. to skew the data. I didn't think it would yeah. it would matter all that much, right? Well, that usually it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Usually it doesn't matter. But for exoplanets, when we're trying to study their atmospheres and look for gases, that's like making a very precise measurement. You know, it would be like measuring your table mm-hmm. to many decimal places. Yeah. Like you might measure your table and say, my table's three feet, but you wouldn't say my table is 3.0001 feet. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to make a measurement like that, then it matters actually. Yes, it, it would. And, and because one of the, 
in the search when you're monitoring atmospheres, they're looking for, if you're looking for intelligent life, you're looking for lights, right? Like if they have cities, are they emitting gases like we are? So, um, yeah, I'm now jacked about the James Webb. Um, where, how far out is that thing going? Well, it's going a million miles away from Earth. Actually, it's there. It already got there. Like so It just got there like the other day, actually. <laughs> oh, really? So now they're going to start yeah. imaging stuff. Yeah, well, it's going to take a while. You know, the analogy I like to give is that it's like, imagine that you know someone who's in a coma. Like, you don't wake them up and say, hey, let's run the Boston Marathon. Like, you sort of slowly wake them up and you, you know, test that, like, their arms are working or, you know, check that they're able to speak. So, with the web, it's literally going to take a few months before it's ready to do its job, like turning things on, turning things off making sure it's all working. So the whole, even though it's already reached its destination, it'll still be a few months before it's ready to roll. Okay. And it's, and it's just going to be, do you know where it's going to be like searching or, or like I have, I thought it was a tapas system, but I, I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't look that up. Yeah. I'm not sure where that came from. So, but it's, um, it's at this special, uh, so it's going to be looking in various different parts of the sky. Like, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like a competitive process. So if you had an idea, there's, let's say you wanted to look at one of the planets you mentioned, mm -hmm. like Kepler-22b, you know, you would write a proposal, maybe get a team together and propose. And then a committee of like peers reviews the proposals. And it's not necessarily always fair, but, you know, chooses the top ranked ones. And those eventually get scheduled for telescope time. And then oh. the telescope will monitor your object and eventually the data will come back to you and you'll analyze that data and see what what's in that planet atmosphere. Oh, I had no idea how this is how it all. I I mean, I'm so new to all of this. Like I yeah, thought it yeah. was just taking a snapshot of everything. I didn't know that you had to write proposals and then it would just hone in on one planet for I don't know, let's say a few days and then it would send the data back and you would eventually get that. I I literally thought for some reason this is how ignorant I am of this whole mm -hmm. process that it was just all right, taking a snapshot, we're going to look over here, we're going to look over there. I I didn't know. So yeah, this I mean, is you have to be really careful too. Like you wouldn't want to point that telescope even at Venus or the sun. It's like you wouldn't look at the sun with your eyes cuz whoa, no. you know that you'll be blinded. So mm -hmm. also you have to be careful, you know, not to point it where it shouldn't go. And also that whatever observation you're going to take, you know, will register. Like, you know, if you can take a picture with your phone, if it's too dark out, like nothing will register. So yeah, there's yeah. sort of a lot of different considerations that have to go into how this telescope will be used. I did not know that. And I do have another. Are you, um, we've had Dr. Avi Loeb on the podcast. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. In fact, I know Avi Loeb when I was a graduate student, when I was first learning I was a graduate student at Harvard, and he was a brand new professor there. This oh, was really? a long time ago. And then over time, you know, he's kind of even an extended family friend. He lives in the next town over. I don't mm -hmm. see him very often, but, you know, he's someone in my sphere. Let's say, let's put it that way. That's awesome. What did you think about his um, theory on Oumuamua? Well, I should ask you, what what was your conclusion after you interviewed him? Oh, I 100% <laughs> think that it was... Uh, uh, an alien spacecraft. 100%. I've had, um, I've had professors on this show that disagreed. They think it was a piece of ice, but I'm like, either way, 
Like that's something that's never, you're proposing something that's just as preposterous right. that we've never seen before. So, I mean, it's the, it's, it's that weird thing. I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of a dumb guy that mathematically, you're definitely not, <laughs> so. but math, math, you got to stop calling yourself stupid. You're really not stupid. Okay. Oh, I may, I'm, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, right? I'm, so I've, yeah, I'm, you're not a specialist I'm, in it. Not you a haven't specialist. Your I just, life, yeah. You haven't devoted your life to studying it. So hundred percent, but I, you're just I trying mean, to work through the logic. That's all. Exactly. Right. And I think, I mean, I don't understand like when we just first started this podcast out. We used to ask people if they believed in Bigfoot, and I, I don't really anymore, but like right. it was a fun thing. But life to me is a lot more fun believing that there are extraterrestrials. Like, and, and if you, if the math works out, right? So why wouldn't you? Right. Like, I'm not, a, well, I'm not afraid. The thing is, okay, so in science, we're really, really particular, mm-hmm. and we really want to have like cold, hard evidence before we say anything. So if you want, you did ask what I think about it. I liked what you said a lot. And then I just kind of end there. I'm like, we don't have enough data on Uamuamua to say like concretely, definitively what it is. Yes. But I like the way that you said it and that Avi Loeb says it, that there's, let's consider the, you know, a few possibilities, right? Like it could be an alien spaceship or it could be a new type of thing we've never heard of before. That is pretty crazy too, like a hydrogen iceberg. Exactly. So for me, I'm good leaving it there. Like, I don't feel like I have to say it's one or the other. We don't, it's sort of this weird thing in science. You just have to get used to living with this indefinite uncertainty. I don't know if you'd be good with that. I don't know if I would be, but now that we're talking about um, definite uncertainty, what other weird things in the space world that are, are, are bizarre that I might not know about, and you do, that you would like to share. I would be very curious. Think of the craziest things. We've we've talked about the phosphine gas, and I think that that's, and I may have mispronounced that, but we've, we've talked about that. I think that's really sweet, and I can't wait to get that paper, that, those papers on it. But what else? There's got to be more things. You still there? Yeah, you're just going in and out a bit, so I'm sure it'll pass. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, there's a, maybe a little bit of latency. John, how how is it looking on your end? Everything looks good here. You guys go okay, ahead. Okay, good. Yeah. You know, when, that's really good. I can't seem to think of anything off the top of my head, but there are, I mean, there's nothing right now that I can think of, but I'd have to kind of go away and give that one a bit of thought. Like in the past, there were, there was this, there are these things in outer space called gamma ray bursts, like yes. big bursts of energy at very, very high energies. And for quite a while, people didn't know, is this like a kind of, you know, significant explosion nearby, like in our own galaxy, somewhere pretty close? Or is it like the biggest explosion we could ever imagine that's really, really far away? Yeah. Oh, and no, wow. one attributed, no one attributed that to aliens, but there are a lot of puzzles like that that eventually do get resolved because we get more information. Yeah. And so for Muamua, I can never say it right. Ua, oh, Muamua. Oh, Muamua, you got that. Yeah. <laughs> It took for me a that while one, too. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, for that one, you know, we may not know any more about that particular object, but if there's one, there's usually more. Yes. And so, you know, we may be better prepared next time that if we see something else like that moving super fast through our, you know, nearby to us, that we can, you know, put some telescopes on it sooner. Some people want to have like a little spacecraft in outer space ready to move to go visit it up close. 
Mm-hmm. So I feel like we'll have more data later, not on that same object, but on different ones. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just purchased um, a book. This is how out there I am about the the Dogon people. And it's uh, I think it's called The Great Question. Are you familiar with the, the Dogon people? You'd have to remind me. I've definitely heard of them. but They're a <clears throat> tribal society in... I want to say like sub-Saharan Africa around the Sudan area that um, they had access to, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, they had access to to like, they had advanced mathematics and they had, um, they figured out a star, Sirius B, before science did. And they knew where it was in the sky. And people are like, how did you figure this out? And they're like, part of their mythology is we were visited by aliens and that's how we figured this out. And um, they were like, they said it was 4,000 years ago. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm always picking up and it's pseudoscience for sure, but it, God damn it. It's entertaining. John, go ahead. <clears throat> uh, so you were right. They are, it's sub-Saharan, but it's in there in Mali. So okay. Man, I'm Africa. on fire today. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm bad. I'm going to say six, 60% correct. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sorry, sir. Have you, is that something that you've heard about? I ha- now that you mentioned it, I have. Yes, I've heard of that. And I, again, I'm like good with just living with not knowing. Like maybe they did know about Sirius B. That would have been fantastic. And I don't know how. Maybe they had, you know, ability to measure things precisely in the sky. Maybe it was just good a good guess. I don't know what it was, but I think or it's awesome. they were visited <laughs> okay. 4,000 years ago. Who knows? Maybe. We weren't uh, around. I mean, we there's a lot around. of people who support that theory. I mean, there's the, you know, the ancient alien theory. People love that theory for the pyramids and for other things. I, I'm uh, in college. That definitely was uh, of a favorite pastime of me and my friends. We would uh, allegedly maybe smoke something and watch that show and just be like, what's going on? But I can um, tell you a bit about that show. Actually. Did you know I used to be on that show? No, no Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. I did not know. What, I what tell you that. So I was called to ask if I would be on the pilot of this show mm-hmm. and they were interviewing maybe like seven people for the theory and seven people against the theory. You were against it. So yeah, I go on this <laughs> show. I think I even went to like New York city cause they were, you know, I usually don't like, yeah, I usually don't travel for this kind of thing, but I was pretty intrigued by the story. So I go and it was just the people making that first pilot were just incredible. Like they asked great questions and they were just so good at speaking. So time goes by and this pilot comes out and guess what? Guess how many of the opponents were on? Zero. Well, I was on and then someone I was on for maybe like a minute or two out of the mm-hmm. one hour. And then someone else was also on briefly. But mostly it was all the uh, proponents, like the people for the theory, because oh, it's such yeah. a great theory and it's. It's so compelling. And by the way, the people for it were so great at speaking. They were like made for the camera, made oh, for yeah. speaking. Yeah. And then yeah. the people against it were more like robotic and very conservative and really, you know, serious. So it kind of yeah. made sense for entertainment. So then the pilot was so successful, or maybe they had already planned like the first series. So I was on it for a while. But then what I noticed was they would take what I said and made it sound like I agreed with the theory. So they would say, do you want, do you know, tell us about this is, this wouldn't be on the show, but they would, to prompt me, they'd say, tell us about the spaceship that might be hiding out near earth. So I'd say, well, there's this special balance point where people wanted to think there was a spacecraft, but there's definitely not one there, but they would cut out that second part. So they would just have me explaining it without saying, but there's definitely not one there. What was, that was, 
Wasn't that something that would come every like 21 years or something okay, like that? Okay, I don't that. know about that. No. But let me finish the story. So yeah. eventually I decided my colleagues would say, I saw you on Ancient Aliens. I'm like, why were you on that? You know? And then I, you know, the only thing I could think of to say is like, well, why were you watching it? (laughs) (laughs) So then eventually I had to not be on it, but I tried one more time and I had to speak as fast as possible. So they couldn't cut my sentence in half and they still cut it in half. And so I just said, I can't be on it anymore. And recently I got asked to be on it again because, you know, there's been a lot of turnover and I just said, no. So if you ever see me on it, I'm super young. And because, you know, you sign a form saying they own like whatever you said forever, I'm like permanently young on the show. So that's like the one good thing to come out of it <laughs> is if you see that it's like me, you know, 15 years ago or something. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. I, it's, it's sad that they did, did, did that though. You're not, you're not yeah, really. Because the idea of like showing the theory and how compelling it is, but then showing some reason, mm-hmm. it's sort of such a great idea in a way, you know, to like just yeah. put it all out there, but it, it kind of got away from itself. Right. It became like very entertaining and yeah. Yeah. There's, but let's there... come back to, I did want to come back to Venus for a moment. Absolutely. That's like our own crazy theory right here in planetary science. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you ask, like, are we going to Venus? How can we go back? Well, all of a sudden, um, after people trying to get missions to go to Venus, NASA is sending two missions to Venus later this decade, at the end of this decade. And the European Space Agency also have planned to send one back. And this is amazing because they're going to do a lot of good research but none of them are investigating the clouds. None of them are, you know, one of them's dropping down into the atmosphere, but they're not studying the clouds and, you know, looking for signs of life. Perhaps it's too taboo, like it's too out there for them, but that's not on the, on the plan either. Dang it. Is yeah, there anything so, we could do? We got to write NASA? Um, well, so what I've been doing for the last while is I've been spearheading a study, like a concept study of how can we go to Venus in a very focused way, a series of missions that can look for signs of life and study the clouds itself? And I'm really proud to tell you that our first mission is is targeted for launch in May of 2023. That really? is like, yeah. And this is mostly actually it's this whole mission is spearheaded by Rocket Lab. They're a company that sends up commercial rockets. And they want to go to Venus. So I'm bringing the science team and the science instrument to the project. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a, well, we got to get you back on and, and, and check in and see how this, uh, this project is going. That is incredible. Hopefully, I, we, and I, go ahead. We hope it's one of a few missions. Like we literally have it all planned out and I'll send you like a link. I don't expect you to read like the 150 pages, but you know, we've wrote down a plan of like how to, get this job done in the next few years. And if everything went amazingly well, you know, the final step, like if everything checked out and it looks, wow, um, there are these weird gases that don't belong. We see, you know, if we can find rich, like organic material in the cloud droplets, if we can kind of get a series of steps done, our dream would be to bring a sample back to earth so we can study it properly and even like look for signs of little microbes. Oh yeah. Then that, then and you know what? You could be the first person that answers that question, are we alone? Which would be incredible. Scientific, in your face, undisputable data, here we go. And then I would be proven right and met millions of okay. others. We're all crazy people. But right. um, that would be amazing. That's This is this is very exciting. I didn't know that. That is so cool. Wow. Um, <clears throat> is there anything else like... Um, 
How who who uh, how big is the team? That's the scientific team. How many members? Right now, I'd say it's about ten people. Right now, okay, it's a pretty small team. And this mission—it's a first mission. It's a very short mission. It, the instrument is very lightweight. Like this instrument is less than a kilogram. And the mission will be dropping a probe to go down through the atmosphere very quickly. It'll only be able to spend this first mission a few minutes in the clouds. Okay. And we'll be like shining a light, like a laser out of a window. And we'll be measuring the backscattered light. And if we can measure that backscattered light um, and like the angles that it goes into, and we measure this thing called polarization, we can tell something about the particles. And what we're also doing is we're shining a light to try to fluoresce the particles. Like as an analogy, do you ever go in like a like a fun house if you were a kid or maybe like a nightclub where they have this fluorescent light and so some of your clothes like light up in a weird way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if this exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. So we're trying to do that. We're shining a laser of a specific ultraviolet wavelength out at these particles. And if we can get them to fluoresce, like to light up in that weird way, it means that that these droplets aren't pure concentrated sulfuric acid. It means that they have something else inside. And things that fluoresce, um, organic molecules fluoresce, molecules that like life needs and that life might even, you know, use or be built of, built from. So we're trying to sort of get away from this picture that Venus is like a sterile planet, but instead that these droplets, they're not just this, you know, nasty substance, but there's a richer thing going on inside. And there's evidence for that. That's why we're doing this. But that's kind of the science we're trying to get back is what are these cloud particles really? If, if, if this ends up being productive and, and these things show that there's something else inside the droplets, doesn't that kind of open up Pandora's box as far as like the, the versatility of life, right? Like that, I think that that would open people's minds to, to start looking in a lot of different places. So this is very important. Um, yeah. I'm work glad you that support you're doing. It. Thank you. No, a hundred percent. That's, that's, it's, well, it's, it's, you're thinking outside of the box. You're not, I think that honestly, I think the, the way that you're approaching uh, the search for life and on other planets is, is probably the best way, you know, because the chances of finding <clears throat> intelligent life or something that is, is, is just as smart as us, if not smarter is, is infinitesimally small, but the, the probability of finding microbes and things that are early in its, early in their stages, something really, really small makes a lot more sense. And, um, yeah, I definitely support this and I definitely love the ingenuity and the creativity that you're showing and studying this. It's amazing. It's, it's good to get this perspective. Um, cause it's not as far fetched and as crazy as I like to think it's a very, very rigid and, and, and a very thoughtful approach to, to the, to search for extraterrestrial life and actually finding proof and gathering the data. And I appreciate it's very important that there are people like you that, you, you know, are alive. I think it's amazing. I'm, I'm very impressed. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, wow. I'm blown away. This is awesome. This is awesome. Um, yeah, is there, um, I mean, I want to be respectful of your time and we're, we're kind of, we're kind of running short. Right. Well, before there, we yeah. wrap up and of course this doesn't really have to be in the show, but I'd love to hear just really briefly about your hiking, just something. Oh yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. Um, about what so, you do out there. I will leave this in the show. I hike, uh, me and my girlfriend are avid hikers. We hike all over the place. We go to the Columbia river gorge and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll shoot you some pictures as sure, well. Sure. Um, Mount hood, we hike the coast. 
uh, we hike everything in this state. Um, there's a, a lot of, uh, Oregon? hiking available. Yeah. Oregon. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We have for, because of the pandemic, partly my teenagers and I started hiking because mm-hmm. remember how when everything shut down, there really wasn't much to do. So we kind of worked our way. We, and then one summer we went to Idaho for a couple of weeks. Oh, there's yeah. some spectacular things in Idaho. And then the next summer we just sort of pick a state we don't know anything about, rent a car and drive around. We picked Oregon. And we hiked up South Sister. That was like our big oh, hike. Yeah. Because there that's like the only supposedly non-technical like cascade. I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of what we so we we managed to hike that and we had this incredible view. We saw like several, like five or six. We could see all the way to Mount Rainier. It was just yep. a smudge. Mm-hmm. But it was just a spectacular view. Yeah. Uh, next time you ever did you did you end up going to Bend when you were out there? I don't think we spent time there. We tried oh, okay. to just, but I think we might have driven close to there. Okay, yeah. Next time, be sure to to, to visit. And if you if you're ever out in Oregon again, let me know. I'd be I'd love okay. to grab dinner Thank with you, you, with yeah, you and your family. Yeah, it's great to hear that you love hiking. It's so great out there. It's incredible. Yeah, you got to take advantage of yeah. what's in your backyard. Um, yeah, when we, we I flew also... to Portland, we were like this close from Mount Hood. Like it was yeah. like right outside our. Has, have you seen that? Have like, oh it's yeah, like right outside your window. It's like yeah. what is that? It's. it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's massive. And we um this last summer we 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 went uh, on a overnight backpacking trip trip in the Three Sisters Wilderness. It's something you have oh, to wow. draw a permit for that and then Right, you have to you get just, a permit to hike up South Sister as well now. It's new uh, apparently. Yeah, it is new. And and the reason they did that is there's just a lot on the on these in these forests there's a lot of people that are into hiking and if you have to pay for it it kind of it raises a barriers to entry and it's a better way of preserving and also the money goes mm-hmm. to to keep to keep the forest pristine so and i think I'm, they want to limit the number of people per day because it's yes. we only found this out like one day before we had to get the permit because you have to get the permit one week before Oh, wow. And we only learned yeah. about this like eight days before, but I woke up really early and like I kept hitting refresh so I could grab the, there's nice. still a lot of people. It was still quite crowded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a, that's a n- new thing that they instituted a few years ago. So the only thing though, as you know, as a hiker that you want to have some flexibility, right? Cause there might be really bad weather or mm-hmm. doesn't work out, but that doesn't allow flexibility somehow. Right. Cause if you have to go like that day. Yeah. 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 That's true. Well, I'm 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 thrilled that you're into into hiking. So that's 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 cool. You got any you got any other hobbies? Uh, let's see. Not really. <laughs> so I'm one of those people who's like ultra focused on what I do. And I my kids are grown kind of grown up now though, so I think it's time to find some hobbies if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. I get that. But I mean, you know, it's like I said, it, people such as yourself are incredibly important for our civilization. You're moving us, you're moving us forward. And, uh, I, you know, I, this has been a blast. Keep up the hard work and and we're definitely going to have you on and and we'll, we'll continue to communicate and any new developments or anything, please let us know. Thank you so much for doing this. Do you have any social media, any books or anything you'd want to promote? Sure. I do have a book. It is called the smallest lights in the universe. And this book is actually a memoir which explores, it actually talks about the exploration of outer space, like space and the search for planets and life. And it also goes through as a memoir, my journey of inner space. You know, we're all searching for something. And so it tries to kind of capture that journey. 
Okay, definitely. We'll we'll put that we'll put the link uh, to the book in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have you on again, and this has been it's great. so great meeting you. I'm really yeah, glad was... that I got to meet you, and it's been really great chatting with you. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all we got. Um, you know, be sure to to buy that book. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave us five stars on iTunes, and be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube. That's right, we're still there, folks. Posting videos. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.